0: Chapter Seven of the Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins, Chapter Seven, William Godwin and Mary Goldstone Craft, Part Two. Godwin certainly worked hard but he imposed unmercifully upon shelley and not on shelley alone but on any one he could get at shelley will meet us no more but who can take leave of his early associations his informing surroundings without calling to mind matthew arnold's commentary what a set what a world is the exclamation that breaks from us as we come to the end of this history of the occurrences of shelley's private life godwin's house of sordid horror and godwin's preaching and holding the hat and the green spectacled mrs godwin and hogg the faithful friend you will remember that he had attempted to induce harriet to leave shelley and hunt the horace of his precious world, and Lord Byron, with his deep grain of coarseness and commonness, his affectation, his brutal selfishness. What a set! Footnote. That's from Matthew Arnold's Essays in Criticism. End footnote. What a set, we may add, for that bird of paradise to have got his radiant wings entangled with. And now to pass to Godwin's work the inquiry concerning political justice and its influence on morals and happiness i may mention in passing that i shall deal not with the first edition in quattro which appeared in seventeen ninety three and which contained much that was altered and very much that was modified afterwards but with the second edition in octavo which appeared in seventeen ninety six and may be regarded as godwin's final gospel by political justice he means he tells us the adoption of any principle of morality and truth into the practice of a community and the inquiry instituted was therefore an inquiry into the principles of society of government and of morals the first part deals with principles the second with the mode in which those principles should be applied in politics and in society the general purport of the work is indicated in the fourth book. The adherents of the old systems of government affirm quote, that the imbecility of the human mind is such as to make it unadvisable that man should be trusted with himself, that his genuine condition is that of perpetual pupilage, that he is regulated by passion and partial views, and cannot be governed by pure reason and undiluted truth that it is the business of a wise man not to subvert either in himself or in others delusions which are useful and prejudices which are salutary and that he is the worst enemy of his species who attempts in whatever mode to introduce a form of society where no advantage is taken to restrain us from vices by illusion from which we cannot be restrained by reason tenets of the opposite of these constitute the great outline of the present work as i am not dealing with this book in detail a succinct review of some of its leading doctrines must suffice locke has observed that the difference between the reasoning of a fool and of a madman is that a fool reasons incorrectly on just data and that a madman reasons correctly on absurd data no one can accuse godwin of any inconsistency in his reasoning of any flaw in his logical process grant his hypothesis and his conclusions follow as necessarily as the conclusion follows the premise in the syllogism follows as certainly as the arithmetic fact that two and two make four but his hypotheses involve not merely the demolition and reconstruction of the whole fabric of society and government but of human nature itself his leading assumptions are perfectibility of man and the omnipotence of reason he contends that that noble animal man so far from being what religion and law had assumed him to be a fallen creature saturated with original sin and desperately wicked so far from being what every political community in the world had assumed him to be a thing to be coerced and restrained a very devil in a straitjacket was by instinct and nature precisely the opposite of all this leave him to himself and his will would secrete virtue as naturally as his liver secretes bile remove the restrictions and impediments which have been placed in the way of his upward aspiring instincts and impulses his natural benevolence humanity and unselfishness in the millennium would be realized reason is omnipotent it should be the sole motive of action the sole guide of action the sole criterion of truth and virtue all other motives guides and criteria are illusions man being as he naturally is a virtuous and reasonable creature an appeal to his reason not only ought to be the only form which coercion should assume but it would be an appeal which would be infallibly successful two other fundamental propositions are the natural equality of rights consequent on natural equality at birth and the idea of the general good general good capitalized as a supreme tribunal at which everything is to be tried now it is not difficult to see how every human institution and system political moral and religious is likely to fare when cast into this metaphysical crucible society is reduced to an aggregate of independent individuals with no respect for tradition with no prescriptive rights and privileges bound by no pacts each his own legislator each free and indeed bound to act just as his particular measure of reason directs hereditary titles become mere gewgaws hereditary property dissolves into to employ godwin's words quote, a mouldy patent shown as a right to extort from neighbours what the labour of those neighbours has produced End quote. every form of coercive government becomes immoral and iniquitous any form of government an evil A usurpation, as he puts it, upon the private judgment and individual conscience of mankind, religious establishments mere insults to human intelligence, designed to perpetuate a system of blind submission and abject hypocrisy. Morality dissolves itself into the correct calculation of consequences, the beneficial or pernicious tendency of any action alone constituting it virtuous or vicious. No institution or system, indeed, survives the test of Godwin's remorseless analysis. But to his condemnation of one institution a particular interest is attached. The institution of marriage is a system of fraud, and men who carefully mislead their judgments in the daily affair of their life must always have a crippled judgment in every other concern. We ought to dismiss our mistake as soon as it is detected, but we are taught to cherish it marriage is now understood as a monopoly and the worst of monopolies so long as two human beings are forbidden by positive institution to follow the dictates of their own mind prejudice will ever be alive and vigorous so long as i seek by despotic and artificial means to engross a woman to myself and to prohibit any neighbour from proving his superior claim i am guilty of the most odious selfishness Over this imaginary prize men watch with perpetual jealousy and one finds his desire and his capacity to circumvent as much excited as the other is excited to diverse his projects and frustrate his hopes. As long as this state of society continues, philanthropy will be crossed and checked in a thousand ways and the still augmenting stream of abuse will continue to flow the abolition of marriage in the form now practised will be attended with no evils footnote. political justice chapter 8 8 End of footnote he then goes on coolly to discuss whether a universal system of free love would be preferable to a system in which a man will select for himself a partner to whom he will adhere as long as that adherence shall continue to be the choice of both parties that was a quotation, he is inclined on the whole to think the latter course would be the most conducive to the public good. The imperturbable serenity with which Godwin lays down his monstrous hypotheses and pursues them to their equally monstrous conclusions is perhaps the most extraordinary feature of his work. This is partly to be attributed to his own abnormal temperament, and partly perhaps to the utter absence in him of any sense of humour, if it had not a more vulgar origin, mere indulgence and in paradoxical vanity. he was himself a person of frigid temper and signally deficient on the side of the emotions, without what Coleridge calls quote, the illumination of the heart. End quote. It never seems to have occurred to him that man cannot by any process be transformed into a logical mill for grinding out philanthropical virtues, and that, even if he could, the result would only be the petrification of life. Let us examine for a moment the unit of Godwin's ideal state. He would be without passion, without emotion, without sentiment. His God would be the public good. AND EVERY ACT OF HIS LIFE WOULD BE A SACRIFICE TO THAT IDOL, TO THAT HE WOULD REFER EVERYTHING. IF HE HAD THE ALTERNATIVE OF SAVING A MOTHER, A WIFE, A FATHER, A CHILD, OR A PERFECT STRANGER FROM DEATH, AND HE WERE SATISFIED THAT THE LIFE OF THE STRANGER WAS FAR MORE IMPORTANT TO MANKIND, HE WOULD SAVE THE STRANGER, AND LEAVE THOSE WHO WERE BOUND TO HIM BY MERE CLAIMS OF AFFECTION TO PERISH. He would form or dissolve ties on a similar principle. He would make love for the public good, or for the public good, he would remain celibate. He would be scivila and curtius, brutus and cato in quintessence. He would neither feel gratitude nor expect it, knowing that what he received he received merely as the proper recipient, and what he gave he gave for the same reason he would not raise a glass of wine to his lips or annex an ornament to his person without satisfying himself that their production had involved no unjust condition of labor personal sympathies or personal antipathies he would have none he would be one whom no intimacy could endear no kindness attach no injuries provoke no beauty charm such is godwin's ideal unit And would you have the picture of the millennium, which the aggregation of these units will realize, here it is in his own words. The men, therefore, whom we are supposing to exist when the earth shall refuse itself to a more extended population, will probably cease to propagate. They will no longer have any motive, either of error or reason, to induce them. The whole will be a people of men and not of children. Generation will not succeed generation, nor truth have in a certain degree to recommence her career at the end of every thirty years. There will be no war, no crimes, no administration of justice, as it is called, and no government. Besides this, there will be no disease, no anguish, no melancholy, and no resentment. Every man will seek with ineffable ardor the good of all mind will be active and eager yet never disappointed men will see the progressive advancement of virtue and good and feel that if things occasionally happen contrary to their hopes the miscarriage itself was a necessary part of that progress they will know that they are members of the chain that each has his several utility and they will not feel indifferent to that utility they will be eager to inquire into the good that already exists, the means by which it was produced, and the greater good that is yet in store. They will never want motives for exertion, for that benefit which a man thoroughly understands and earnestly loves, he cannot refrain from endeavouring to promote. Footnote. Political Justice. Book 8. 9. and footnote we contemplate godwin's utopia with its ideal unit and its polity of ideal units with something of the feeling with which macbeth contemplated the spectre of banquo it cannot indeed be said that this frigid phantasma of the pure reason this stark and pallid mockery of life has no speculation in the eyes to which it glares into the inquirer but for the rest it is certainly all banquo Avant we cry End brackets. thy bones are marrowless thy blood is cold Footnote, macbeth three four and footnote. godwin's ruthless reduction of all that gives life its grace its colour its charm nay its real meaning into the caput mortuum of mere reason is not only in the highest degree repulsive but absurd and ridiculous hobbes and swift had attempted to do the same thing before him and if the leviathan had succeeded the revolution and the creator of the king of brodignag had under the same impulse tried his hand at the utopia literature might have witnessed the singular spectacle of the extremes of cynicism passing by precisely the same process into the extremes of optimism godwin never seems to have reflected that pure reason in the application to conduct and life is a very insufficient and treacherous guide it conducted him to the perfectibility of man and to the millennium it conducted falstaff to the rejection of honour remove all that godwin removed transcendental and sentimental considerations and how unanswerable is falstaff's logic with the unanswerableness of godwin's own honor pricks me on yea but how if honor pricks me off when i come on how then can honor set a leg no or an arm no or take away the grief of a wound no honor hath no skill in surgery then no what is honor a word what is in that word honor what is that honor Air. A trim reckoning, who hath it? He that died o Wednesday, doth he feel it? No. Doth he hear it? No. Is it insensible then? Yea, to the dead, but will it not live with the living? No. Why? Detraction will not suffer it. Therefore, I'll have none of it. Honor is a mere scrutcheon, and so ends my catechism. Footnote. King Henry the Fourth, Act One, Scene One. End footnote. Well might Troilus say, Nay, if we talk of reason, let's shut our gates and sleep. Manhood and honor should have hair hearts. Would they but fat their thoughts with this crammed reason? Footnote: Troilus and Cressida, Part Two, Act Two. End Footnote but it would be doing god when great injustice not to acknowledge that there is much in his work which is of real value it is well that the institutions which he arraigns should be submitted to such tests as he applies to them not as a test of their title to existence but as a test of their applicability to modification it is well that the questions which he discusses should be approached on the side on which he approaches them lest one good custom should corrupt the world. Many of his remarks on aristocracy, on the restrictions laid upon the virtuous energies of man, on free will and necessity, on revolutions, on good and evil, are excellent, and his note is sometimes really noble, as read his reply to those who would not assist in negro emancipation on the ground that the slaves are contented. It is not very material to a man of liberal and enlarged mind whether they are contented or no. Are they contented? I am not contented for them. I see in them beings of certain capacities equal to certain pursuits and enjoyments. It is of no consequence in the question that they do not see this, that they do not know their interests and happiness. They do not repine, neither does a stone repine. That which you mention as an alleviation finishes, in my conception, the portrait of their calamity. Abridged as they are of independence and enjoyment, they have neither the apprehension nor the spirit of men. I cannot bear to see human nature thus degraded. It is my duty, if I can, to make themselves a thousand times happier than they are. Footnote Political Justice Book Six, Eleven. And footnote. Again, in the same chapter. The man who has sought to benefit nations rises above the mechanical ideas of barter and exchange. He asks no gratitude. To see that they are benefited or to believe that they will be so is its own reward. He ascends to the highest of human pleasures, the pleasures of disinterestedness. He enjoys all the good, that mankind possesses and all the good that he perceives to be in reserve for them no man so truly promotes his own interest as he that forgets it no man reaps so copious a harvest of pleasure as he who thinks only of the pleasure of other men it must be admitted that nothing leads itself so easily to eloquence that finds a response in every liberal mind as the themes of the political justice and that passages like these, and they are many, do not compensate the radical unsoundness and pernicious tendency of this most extravagant work, a work of which it may be said, as was said with less truth of another, that a foolish man could not have written it, and that a wise man would not. But to turn from Godwin to Mary Wollstonecraft and her work, I have already given a sketch of her life and shown how the revolution affected her, and how she wrote her foolish and intemperate letter to Burke. This subject was followed up four years later by the first volume of An Historical and Modern View of the French Revolution. Neither of these works is of any interest now, and therefore I shall say no more about them merely remarking that the second is of a very different character from the first being comparatively sane and sober but the work by which she is remembered and which deserves to be remembered is the work which we will now consider on july third seventeen ninety she drew up a petition pleading for the admission of women to the right of citizenship and on july twelfth, an assembly at the palais royal the abbe flochet accompanied by a dutch lady madame Palm Edler, addressed the assembly in an eloquent speech on the subject for some months women had not only been present at the meetings of the jacobins in the rue des Honore, but had taken part in the debates of madame Palm Edler, supported by condorcet and flochet now determined to press for their right to engage in public affairs not as mere interlopers in accidents but as having authority but the movement was not successful in a pamphlet published by tolerant who was not in favour of the admission of women to these rights he had conceded that to see one half of the human race excluded by the other from all participation of government was a political phenomenon that according to abstract principles it was impossible to explain on that hint mary wollstonecraft spoke and she dedicated her vindication of the rights of women to Talleyrand, whom she had met in london in seventeen ninety two just before the book was published it was to induce Talleyrand to support the movement in france where the question was the political equality of the sexes hoping no doubt that it would form a precedent and extend to england this plea is included in her vindication But no stress is laid on it the stress being laid only on educational equality the purport of her work she describes in summary herself contending for the rights of woman my main argument is built on this simple principle that if she not be prepared by education to become the companion of man she will stop the progress of knowledge and virtue for truth must be common to all or it will be inefficacious with respect to its influence on general practice. And how can woman be expected to cooperate unless she know why she ought to be virtuous? Unless freedom strengthen her reason till she comprehend her duty, and see in what manner it is connected with her real good. If children are to be educated to understand the true principle of patriotism, their mother must be a patriot. And the love of mankind from which an orderly train of virtues spring can only be produced by considering the moral and civil interest of mankind but the education and situation of woman at present shuts her out from such investigations footnote dedication to tolerant footnote she then proceeds to say that she shall consider women Quote, in the grand light of human creatures who in common with men are placed on the earth to unfold their faculties end quote. footnote from her introduction and that her exhortation will not be addressed to quote, ladies end quote, only to whom such serious instruction as has hitherto been conferred on woman has now practically confined but more particularly to those of the middle class. She then reviews the prevalent theories about the education proper for women, giving a special prominence to Rousseau, who in his Emile had contended that women were constitutionally unfitted for studies, which tend to generalize ideas, such as the exact sciences, that works of genius are beyond their capacity, that their sphere is the heart, not the head, their spring impulse not reason and that their chief study should be man to understand him and to please and fascinate him that they are essentially unreasoning creatures but the more charming and delightful because of that the other writers whom she reprobates are milton but more especially dr gregory dr fordyce and mrs barbold who were then great authorities on women's education they had inculcated just the conventional notions about woman and her relation to man and to the scheme of life which may be said to be summed up in the pretty lines which dryden puts to the mouth of raphael when addressing adam and eve thy stronger soul shall her weak reason sway and then through love her beauty shall obey thou shalt secure her helpless sex from harms and she thy care shall sweeten with her charms footnote dryden's state of innocence act two section one footnote all this she contends had tended to degrade women to place them in a most false and unworthy position and all this she illustrates comprehensively by citing a copy of verses by mrs Barbold, indignantly emphasizing portions by italics flowers to the fair to you these flowers i bring and strive to greet you with an earlier spring begin italics flowers sweet and gay and delicate like you emblems of innocence and beauty too flowers the sole luxury which nature knew End italics in eden's pure and guileless garden grew begin italics to loftier forms are rougher tasks assigned the sheltering oak resists the stormy wind the tougher yew repels invading foes and the tall pine for future navies grows but this soft family to cares unknown were born for pleasure end italics and delight begin italics alone end italics gay without toil and lovely without art they spring to cheer the sense and glad the heart nor blush my fair to own you copy these. Your, begin italics, best, end italics, your sweetest empire is, to please. Footnote to a lady with some painted flowers. End footnote. Not till women come to understand that this sort of thing is the grossest insult that can be offered them, the kind of homage which they ought indignantly to repudiate, there will be small hope of their becoming what God and nature had fitted them to become. It was no doubt very gratifying to the tyrant man to find that he had a monopoly in all that makes life important and honourable, very gratifying to be looked up to as a demigod, and to have these lovely creatures, these, quote, emblems of innocence and beauty too, end quote clinging helplessly to him for support. He's supporting them just as long as it happened to be agreeable to him to support them, and then, when the parasite ceased to be lovely or attractive, letting it drop and collapse in ruin, or how it might. She complains that the whole education of women tends in this direction to make them, quote, fine by defect and amiably weak, end quote. To make them believe seriously that their end and aim had been summed up in Lord Lyttelton's precept, one only care your gentle breast should move the important business of your life is love. Footnote, advice to a lady wholly erroneous notions of what constitutes modesty, decorum, and propriety, tending rather to the corruption of woman than to her enlightenment cry aloud for reformation she is very severe on the weak institutions the sentimentalism the over-attention to dress the ignorance of all that concerns the rearing and education of children then prevalent among women all of which she attributes to absurdly mistaken notions as to the discipline proper for them her remarks on education are very sensible And in her scheme for combining what was best in public and what was best in private education, contending that it should be undertaken by government, she anticipated what is with some modification our present national school system, just as in her scheme for the education of young women, she anticipated the Froebel system. In a word, she would have training directed to fitting a woman for the severe duties of life, let their constitution be braced by athletics and such pursuits as gardening their minds by the study of experimental philosophy and serious literature their character by free intercourse with the world let such professions be open to them as they are fitted to fill especially medicine surgery and the care of the sick all this is expressed it may be owned in a style which is too often exceedingly slipshod and too often offensively bombastic, and what is worse, with touches of coarseness which plainly indicate that in acquiring the virtues of man, woman is in some danger of acquiring them at a heavy loss. Like most reactionists, she goes too far. She underestimates, and that contemptuously, all that constitutes the charm of woman in making quote, reason. End quote, the criterion and standard of everything she lays herself open to refutation by nature herself. Nature is capitalized. But on the whole, it may be pronounced to be an admirable work, temperate, reasonable, and eloquent, with the eloquence of rare rational enthusiasm. It certainly marked and contributed to initiate a new era in the history of woman, it gave a great impulse to that movement which has been one of the most striking and important movements of the present age the higher education of women and the vindication of woman's right to share and assist in all these aspirations aims and achievements which constitute the dignity of human nature and are the glory of the human race one of the rights for which she pleaded still remains unattained more than one half of every political community is still excluded from all participation in its government woman has not yet the suffrage but patience ladies your time is coming and is probably now hard at hand but whether for good or whether for the opposite that same time alone can tell to the two writers whom we have been considering great and permanent interest attaches itself quite apart from any question of the intrinsic value of their works for the teachings of the one humanized beautified consecrated have been embodied in poetry which is among the glories of our language and can only perish with the language and to the other belongs the honor of sounding the trumpet for the most important social revolution of modern times End of chapter 7